I'm Eileen Dunn. This is the Christmas edition of The God Slot and these are the boy choristers of the Palestrina Choir. and a very happy Christmas to you. Looking at the brightly but secularly coloured shop windows in Dublin city centre today, a visitor from another planet might be left wondering what this Christmas malarkey is all about. Is it about overindulgence, food and drink, about spending lots of money on things we really don't need? Is it just one long but meaningless party? Or is it about something else? A rather special birthday. Well, let's direct our extraterrestrial to Parnell Square in Dublin and show him the moving crib, and we might just find some enlightenment. That's where we are today, and I'm standing outside with Pat Campbell, one of the longest-serving staff members at this place, that is such a part of not only just a Dublin Christmas, Pat, but which means so much to all who visit the capital. Yes, this has gone back a long time now. It opened in 1956. It was started off by Father Coffey, who indeed started the entire apostolate here. And Father Coffey and was great pals with another very, very well-known Dominican priest, Father Angus Buckley, a very famous artist who did frescoes all over Ireland and all over the world indeed. And Father Buckley did all the scenery for the creed. And um, Unfortunately, Father Buckley died then after a number of years, but we were very lucky then to get another very well-known Dublin artist, a man called Cormac Larkin. And thankfully, Cormac is still with us, and he comes along here every year and touches up anything that needs a bit of touching up, and if there's any new scenes or anything done in, he'd be able to put in the, the, the scenery for that also. Well, we're going to walk our way through it and go down and meet some of our other guests as we get downstairs, but... You can hear in the background the machines working overtime and I see uh, cobblers cobbling here and, and workmen working away. But I think we're going to have to turn off those machines or our sound engineers are going to go ballistic by the time we get down there. Let's start. Now, this goes beyond the actual nativity story. It starts... It starts at the very beginning, Eileen. It starts with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They ate the forbidden fruit and for that... They were expelled from the garden, and as we move along here to the second scene, you see Adam and Eve, and they are very, very ashamed. There are 14 tableaux altogether. There are 14 altogether. It goes from all the different, uh, the different sections, particularly the, the better-known ones. You'll see where God told Noah to make an ark. And here you see all the people, Noah and all his things, cutting the wood. 
and making, getting ready to prepare and make the ark. And then when we come to the next one, it and is the ark. We move in here and here's the finished product. And there are all sorts of animals on it, giraffes and elephants and monkeys, and, uh, and they're having a great time. Now, as we move downstairs, um, I'm noticing that there's a box here for contributions and donations, and it is all voluntary donations that keep it going. Absolutely. People who come here to visit us are very, very good altogether, and they have kept it going for all those years. It's a free show, and it has been billed by many RTE programmes and papers as the best free show in Ireland. And we're moving down now. Um, what's the first thing we now see when we come down? The first thing you see here, the first scene, is the Annunciation, where the, uh, the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to become the mother of, of our Lord. And next then, at that time, it was around the time when there was a census had to be taken in, in Bethlehem, and Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem. It was a long journey. She was pregnant. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, they discovered it was a bit like Parnell Square here around All-Ireland Football Day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't a room to be got anywhere, so there was no room at the inn. Now, you mentioned earlier that, of course, this is not just only for Dubliners, but also for visitors who come from the country and from abroad. I imagine that in the past, the 8th of December was probably the busiest day, oh, was it? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes, the 8th of December was a huge, huge day here. And it's still, like, as I say, people always like, I think, to visit the capital around the Christmas time. And now, of course, we get an awful lot of visitors from England and from America and forever else if they're visiting with family or friends for Christmas. Like most of us, myself and Evie, yourself, Eileen, they remember us as children, and if they get the opportunity to have, they love to come along and, and to visit it and to, 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 uh, to relive the memory again. It's and it's not closed yet, this is Christmas morning, but it'll be open for another week or two. It'll be open, it will. It'll close us this year on the 5th of January. Thanks for that, Pat, for walking us through the, the best part of the moving crib. We've now come downstairs, and we're meeting the boys from the Palestrina Choir, six of them part of that national treasure that comes from our pro-cathedral. So this is a pretty busy time for you guys too. <clears throat> We've done a lot of stuff over the Christmas season. We have a carol service. We've done our National Concert Hall concert, which went fantabulous. Oh, sorry, that was an accident. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> that's a perfectly valid word, I'm sure, in the context. <laughs> so what are you going to sing for us now? We are going to sing Away in a Manger. Okay, let's leave you to it.
The boys from the Palestrina Choir, led by head chorister Christopher Kenny, and we'll be hearing more from them before the end of the programme. The birth of Jesus, which of course is what we celebrate today, is mentioned in only two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and it's from chapter 2 of Luke that we set the scene for the rest of our programme. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. A reading from St. Luke, and that passage gives us plenty to think about. And here in front of the manger scene depicted by St. Luke at the Moving Crib in Parnell Square in Dublin, I'm joined by student and columnist Ben Conroy, author on theology Anne Thurston, fiddle and whistle player and legendary Dubliner John Sheehan, and author, broadcaster and journalist Fiona Looney, a panel of seasonal A-listers. Ben, as the youngest member, how excited do you get by Christmas or are you bored with it all at this stage? Oh, bored never. Uh, our, our family are big believers in Advent and C.S. Lewis used to talk about being uh, surprised by joy. Well, for us, Advent is a time where joy kind of sneaks up on you gradually and gradually and more and more culminating, of course, in today, in the in the shock, in the shock that the, the, the tradition that is a shock, you know, same thing every year and every year it never ceases to amaze me. Uh, Advent done right should be a time when maybe the barriers between our world and the world to come are blurring a bit, where you're getting a bit of that sense of of ultimate joy leaching into our lives a bit more. And I think Christmas time, Christmas time was, you know, Jesus probably wasn't born December the 25th. You know, sometimes the, the Facebook crusaders of secularism um, make this point and, and go, hey, did you know this? You know, Jesus wasn't born, of course, you know, it's in the Pope's book. But... Uh, but the fact is, it's, uh, the reason it's chosen to coincide with an older pagan festival is it's saying, look, Christianity, Jesus, is not here to override magic or mystery or Christmas trees or Santa Claus. No, what Jesus is here to say is that that is real, that that magic and mystery and wonder is more true, more real than the kind of boredom and drudgery that, that sometimes fill our lives. That when we get to that time of Christmas where, you know, that Christmassy sense that maybe anything is possible, something magical could just happen, that you know, Jesus Jesus fits in with that. It's not there's no contradiction in my mind. You know, the 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 Christian message is that the world really is that amazing, that wondrous. And Thurston as a theologian, what's your perspective? Well, um I think similarly to Ben, I would also start with the secular because I think that that's where we all begin and and I also don't see any divorce between the material things of Christmas because in a sense the message of the incarnation is to make matter matter if i can put it like that <laughs> it, it it actually um uncovers you know the depth and heart of all of this so even as we listen to that familiar story at the beginning i thought to myself how no matter how often we hear it it's a wonderful story luke is a superb storyteller and it's interesting that we're sitting here in front of the moving crib but this is on the radio 
but we have all these images in our mind and we can follow this story along. So the story matters. And this distinction between did it happen and is it true, there are two different questions. So we feel the truth of it, very much so. And I like the fact that Luke gives it a political setting, as it were, because our understanding of Christmas also is always in a context. So we have these two things happening all the time. We have our context in which we live, and then we have these stories which sustain us. And so, you know, coming back to um, the reality of Christmas on, on every level, I think the joy of it, um, for me very much, is now restored through the fact that um, we have our small granddaughter and uh, we have, the pr I think, the privilege of having her stay with us on um, Christmas Eve. So to hear her excitement in the morning is a great pleasure. One quote I saw, Fiona, Christmas is a time for pause, a listening of the heart. We become nicer people in the run up to Christmas, don't we? We do. And, you know, I have to say it's fascinating listening to both Ben and Anne acknowledge, as I would do as well, that that, that there is a sort of a holistic feel to Christmas. You know, yes, obviously it is the Christian message for those of us who choose to take that on board. There are millions and millions of people out there who are having a fantastic Christmas morning and there is no religious aspect to it. And their celebration is every bit as valid as anyone else's. And, you know, I've told stories. I work with um, junior infants and have done so for years down in the local school with paired reading. And always coming up to Christmas, somebody gets utterly confused and overexcited and starts talking about the birth of Santa Claus or, you know, some, they get very, very confused. <coughs> as to the, the, the twin roles. And I've heard older people saying, to, you know, I've had older people who've said to me, you need to put them straight on that. And I kind of think, well, you know what? If four-year-olds are getting confused about two of the most positive figures in history, I don't have a problem with that. You know, you're talking about two people who in very different ways came into the world to bring incredible joy, you know, Jesus Christ and Santa Claus. You know, when people talk about the whole idea of we've forgotten the real message of Christmas, if you want to be very pedantic about that, the original message of Christmas was a celebration of the return of the sun. That fundamentally is what the 25th of December is about. If you want to spell sun, S-O-N, that's fine. You can spell it, yeah, S-U-N. The, the point is, it is... Uh, almost, as you say, a pause. It's almost a full stop at the end of the year where we look back and we say, my God, isn't the world a wonderful place? Aren't we wonderful people? And actually, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there's so much charity goes on at Christmas. And I think everyone deserves just to take a breath and say, you know what, we're not doing such a bad job. John, talk about your childhood Christmas in Dublin. My childhood Christmas is in, in Marino, where I grew up. Um, they were a simple affair, but there was always a great there was always a great air of excitement leading up to it. Um, my mother came from County Limerick, from a small farming community, and uh, a goose would arrive in the post, <laughs> uh, unlike the, the general custom of, of the turkey. But uh, they, they used the, the, the goose as, as the celebratory thing down down in, in Limerick. And uh, on Christmas morning, there was a great air of excitement. We'd all dash downstairs. And uh, our little presents would be laid out on, on the table with divisions in between them. And uh, there were simple things, I'd, maybe a set of toy soldiers, um, an ambulance, a fire brigade engine, uh, little tin, tin toys. And uh, accompanied with that might be a, 
something wouldn't see that often in those days, like an apple or an orange, an orange rather, and um, pencils and rubbers and useful things for school. But simple, but but a great air of joy and excitement about it all. Fiona, you have three children. I imagine it's very different in your house now. It's not apples you'd be giving them. Oh, certainly. <laughs> well, it is, but they're electronic. It's, it's from the apple shop rather than from the greengrocers. Um, the, I mean, my children now are 16, 14 and 12. So we're kind of at that in-betweeny stage where it's... I was going to say it's not as magical as when they're little. Uh, to be honest, it's every bit as magical as mm -hmm. when they were little. But I suppose there's more of a... Uh, it, it's everyone is involved in creating the magic. Everybody has to make an effort to sort of make the magic happen. And in many ways, that as a parent is more rewarding to see that they are driving the ritual, you know. And there are certain things like, you know, last night, as we have done every year since they were babies, um, the vigil mass, the six o'clock mass, then we rush home. Um, we cut the Christmas ham, which my parents always did before us on Christmas Eve. And you have it with chips because, frankly, you know, well, there's enough cooking. cooking going on um, on Christmas Eve. And then after that, as we've done every year, we watch the Polar Express on DVD. Beautiful and film. then we take turns and um, the children, uh, children, the teenagers as they are now, um, they take turns every year to read. We have a beautiful copy of The Night Before Christmas. And one of them read it last night. You know, we take turns and then they scatter up and they all sleep in the same room on Christmas Eve 16, 14 and 12 I mean it's bedlam but it's wonderful you know I really wanted to, to give my children a kind of a legacy of a, a, a really good memory of Christmas that hopefully in years to come that they will be able to create in their own homes with their own children that will, will carry on right. because I think ritual is, is very important at this time of year um, we both want to come in, I think, on that point of ritual because I couldn't agree with you more. I think it really is about the rituals that you create. And I find it fascinating. Obviously, my children are a lot older than yours. They're all adults. They're all living away from home. But when they return to us for these celebrations, it's the rituals that they remember. And these rituals are taken up by them, just as you're saying, and also changed in their way. Um, one of the ones that's changed that I really enjoy and you might appreciate too is that now our son does the cooking on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> so I am most appreciative of that. Well but trained. We actually also start our celebration on Christmas Eve and have a special Christmas Eve meal. So all this building up of um, the... not It is not just the building of excitement. I actually think it's the building up of tradition. So tradition really does matter. And of course, you know, the, the origins of the whole thing in, uh, in the Jewish story, the, in, the, in, uh, in, in that um, faith tradition, all these rituals happen in the home. So this is very much mm. carrying, carrying that on. I think one of the primary memories for our family will probably be an, a totally unexpected thing which happened one year when a family whom we didn't know and hadn't met before came and joined us for Christmas. And it, it was actually, it felt like a blessing. That's the only, the only words I can use. Um, it happened to be an Indian family. Um, and uh, there was a very slight connection, but we met them on the Christmas morning and they came and joined us. And that Christmas, I know, is going to go down as one of the most blessed Christmases that we've had. But they were the blessing to us. Talk about opening up for Santa when Santa was coming and the traditions of leaving things for him. 
Oh yeah, no, we, we do that. It's amazing hearing these rituals and hearing the things we have in common. You know, every family has um, their own <laughs> traditions. I think. Fantastic, you know, Polar Express and and for some Muppets Christmas Carol and, and and on today later today it'll be the Doctor Who Christmas special where we'll be mm. losing the great Matt Smith, but Peter Capaldi will I'm sure do a great job. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he will if I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> but uh, but uh, to all Whovians out there, so but. I think about, I think you know I echo a huge amount of that stuff about the importance of ritual you know for us for us and to talk about Christmas morning for me to talk about Santa Claus we would leave we'd go to our mass we'd come back we'd have a lovely little time of just quiet chat where sort of some of the manicness fades away and people are just talking and sharing memories and then again we all sleep in the same room I have uh, two younger sisters and a younger brother and this one night we all cram into a tiny room <laughs> and stay up ridiculously late laughing uh, but uh, but. Then we do leave stuff out for Santa Claus, and again, just to talk about that notion of the Santa Claus is echoing this 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 very Christian idea to me of a of a world full of magic, a world full of of, of mystery. Um, one year we came down on Christmas morning. We always we come down, we we wake up, wake up the parents, we say a little prayer, and we go downstairs. And normally Santa leaves the presents in the kitchen, but this one year we came down, said our prayer, opened the door, and saw nothing, nothing. Not even coal. Not even coal. Shock. <laughs> horror. Okay? We're looking around. What, what, what could possibly... We've already passed through the sitting room. It just doesn't seem like any other place it could be. We see Santa's letter. He always writes letters to us. Uh, just very, feel very privileged. Um, and over the attic key, the big, huge attic key, and there's instructions in the letter. So we go up to the attic, open the attic, climb up, and there are all the presents in our attic where uh, they've never been before and have never been since. But just, just again, just even that little thing of the, the, the unexpectedness and the wonder and the, and the magic, I suppose. Uh, and, and as I get older, that doesn't diminish. That, that sense of becoming, you know, like, like helping out a bit more in the days leading up. And, and that, that, it's, it's a different, you know, it's, it's a shift in emphasis, but the magic is still very much there for me, I think, you know. And uh, some people have doubts, you know. We're going to pause now for a second because back in 1897, I think, a young Virginia O'Hanlon wrote a very famous letter to the editor of the New York Sun and received a reply from Francis Farcellus Church, which has since become history's most reprinted newspaper editorial. Virginia wrote, Dear Editor, I'm eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the scepticism of a sceptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant in his intellect as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist, and you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike fate then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. 
the eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus. You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus, but even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not. But that's no proof that they're not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. You may tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside, but there is a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus. <laughs> Thank God he lives, and lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. Lovely. That was John Sheehan playing the tin whistle. John, what was that piece? That was a piece I composed about oh, 25 years ago called St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, like all our wonderful treasures around the city, like St. Patrick's and Christ Church, we, we, as citizens, I think we all have a vague notion. We must go in there someday and have a look. And that was the case with myself. And eventually I went in and I was totally enthralled with the, the atmosphere of the place. And I tried to recreate some of that in in the melody, so hopefully it has a bit of a cathedral feel, maybe a Christmassy feel, in, even, even I think. Lovely, and lovely it was too. What about this place, the Moving Crib? Had you come here before? I, I was here as a maybe a young te teenager. Is it 55 years old? 50, yeah, it opened in 56. So. Right, yeah. I do have memories of being brought here by my parents as a young teenager and being totally enthralled by the these moving figures. Uh, there's a lovely rustic simplicity about, about the whole thing. And uh, in contrast to um, 
today's modern age with computer games and everything. Uh, when I came back in today, I promised myself I must bring my grandchildren to, to, uh, to visit it this year and, and just to see their, their reaction, you know. Fiona, did you come here and have you brought your children? Uh, to be honest, I didn't even know this place existed when I was a child. But I did, I have to say, through the, the good works of Joe Duffy, who's been a champion of the Moving Crib for years, it certainly has a, a, just a real, you know, a rustic charm, as John said, you know, and it is, it, it's really beautiful. And I would advise anyone with children or, you know, anyone with just half an hour to kill to come in here. It's yeah. a lovely, lovely little space. And how about you? Had you visited here before? Do you know, I only have the vaguest memory. I think I must have been as a child. There was something familiar about it when I walked in this morning, but I didn't bring my children to it. Um, one interesting thing I was thinking, of, just in terms of cribs, the first crib was started by Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. so, and that's in 1223. 1223, yeah. Yeah, it's, al it's almost 800 years ago. So um, that's when this tradition started. And I was saying to Ben earlier, it's, I think it's a form of preaching through these visual things, which, which we need. I think he had, he had live animals. He did have live animals. <laughs> he was the first to introduce the live animals. And people, and it was to do that. It was like that's right. probably it, the, the nativity a, play that we have it. now. It was exactly. to recreate. People often give out about the commercialization of Christmas. People, you know, say like, you know, we are losing the real meaning or whatever. I think there's two commercializations of Christmas and one of them's not that bad. One of them is the idea that, as, as the sci-fi writer and critic Orson Scott Card said, uh, any society that gets a huge economic boost from people buying gifts for each other is doing something right. Um, now, the problem is where that becomes an end in itself and where people get so stressed um, and so worried trying to kind of, you know, get the gifts and get everything ready and make it all perfect that when it is inevitably not perfect, they get stressed and they start, they lose the ability to give what is in my mind the most important gift, the gift of time, the gift of attention, the gift of love. Um, and so, and in keeping with that idea of re reclaiming the Christmas season, those days after Christmas, which are one of my favorite parts, that time where, you know, you've, you've got the presents, you've done the celebrations and you just have time to relax and be with your family and your friends. Um, and maybe go on a trip, go to the moving crib, spend time with people, uh, I think that that you can't underestimate the power of that gift of actually just taking Christmas as that pause, as that time to say, let us step back. I mean, Jesus didn't go around doing miracles and preaching 100% of the time. If you read it, he regularly goes and takes a break. He, he, he retreats. He says, I'm going to step away from the world now. Um, I think, you know, it was good enough for Jesus. It should be good enough for us. You know? Well, let's just take that a little bit further. I mean, that's what we used to do as kids. We did a tour in the days after Christmas, beginning out in Inchicore with the Oblets, where you had the grotto and the mm. life-size mm -hmm. uh, crib. Um, but Emily O'Reilly, former ombudsman here, now European ombudsman, a couple of years ago, she talked about that and she said that instead of doing the tour of the crib nowadays, it was the tour of the houses with the million lights outside. <laughs> Do people go to cribs, apart from the ones in their own church, maybe? I don't think people do a tour as such. Uh, like yourself there, I remember doing a tour of maybe seven or eight churches in, of a Sunday afternoon after Christmas, you know. But can, can I just give you a quick one? Um, one of my grandchildren, what they said about the magic of Santa Claus. Um, this is Dara when he was about three or four years old. Um, he's obviously enthralled with the whole wonder of the thing, Santa Claus and so on. But um, an interesting perspective, the way a kid will see things from a totally different angle. He says, Granny, did Santa Claus bring you loads of presents years ago when you were a little granny? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there a lovely wonder about that? Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs>
And that building up of traditions and rituals. So how is the rest of the day going to pan out for all of you now? John. I think uh, most of the, the, the family are going to come and stay with us over Christmas. I have two sons and two daughters. And, and uh, my, my second son has two grandchildren that I mentioned there, uh, Dara and Killian. So they'll come along and, and uh, bring some of the presents that the, they got in their own home, of course. And uh, it'll be a general celebration of togetherness, I think. And uh, just thinking back there um, as well about the, the atmosphere of Christmas, walking down Grafton Street on a Christmas Eve, there's a great openness about people and a, a physical kind of a change in, in people's attitudes to each other. You know, strangers smile at each other and, and uh, wish each other a happy Christmas and so on. And, and I often think it's a pity some of that atmosphere couldn't be brought into the following year and last a little bit longer, you know. <laughs> we do it better than other countries too, don't we, Fiona? That whole openness and, you know, Grafton Street on Christmas Eve is just I, I think I think we do. And I lived in London for a few years and Christmas, oh, Christmas Day in London felt like much less of an event. Um, you know, little things. And, you know, God knows we have issues with alcohol, but our pubs don't open, generally speaking, on Christmas Day, whereas it's a completely normal day in a lot of countries in terms of business. A lot of shops open, you know, which is very unusual here. Um, so I think we do still have it ring-fenced. You know, we seem to be... You know, St Stevens's day, as we call it in Dublin, you know, has been eroded a little bit by commerce. Sadly. And I think that is a bit of a shame. I mean, I love in the mornings on Christmas Day, and you know, really up till about sort of two o'clock when people get kind of settled to wherever they're going for the day. I love seeing, you know, the traffic out and everybody seems to be on a journey that will end in laughter and happiness, you know. And, and I know that's not the case always. Mm. I mean, my, my own father, not long before he died, he spent Christmas in, in hospital. And I remember for me, it was not only the worst Christmas, but it was, it, I will forever now spare a thought for people who are in hospital or who are alone or, or who are broken at Christmas because it is awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for all that we are celebrating the happiness of it, I think we have to always remember that not everybody has the good fortune that we do. But, you know, even in that, I think we are very good at remembering that. We are very good at opening our hearts, our pockets, our homes, and um, long may it continue to be so. But there are people who just don't like it. There's a huge pressure to be really happy <laughs> and that can be a strain. Mm -hmm. And so there must be something which actually allows people to be as they are. And I think one of the things I think we can sentimentalise Christmas terribly easily and sitting in front of what is, let's face it, a somewhat sentimental version. Um, I think that it is important to bring us back to that story of Luke which has a complexity to it. And it's that complexity that is recognised in the Christian message, which makes it rather different. We talked about the sameness before, but I want to perhaps stress the difference now. It's the acknowledgement of the complexity. There is pain at the heart of this story, and there is always a lot of pain at the heart of all our stories. And somehow it's the capacity to hold these things together, which probably is what is really there at Christmas. But it's something about allowing this story to seep into us so that we actually can do this, have this capacity to hold these things together. Because it is about the light coming into the darkness. And if the darkness weren't there, we wouldn't see the light. I, I, I really want to come in on this because it's, it's, this is why I'll always speak up for the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, not because it is 
somehow you know the, the, the secular Christmas or whatever is having too much fun or it's, it's too intense and this should be a sort of solemn religious thing. But because, to me, the fullness of Christmas is more intense, it has all of it. It has the dirt, the straw, the struggle to get into the, the manger, and then it has much of what makes Christmas today has the wise men coming and bearing gifts. I think G.K. Chesterton once said, the three kings came to Bethlehem bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. If they had only brought truth and purity and love, there would have been no Christian art and no Christian civilization. Okay, Ben, thank you. We must leave matters there. We end our conversation with these words from Charles Dickens. Christmas time. That man must be a misanthrope indeed, in whose breast something like a jovial feeling is not roused in whose mind some pleasant associations are not awakened by the recurrence of Christmas. There are people who will tell you that Christmas is not to them what it used to be, that each succeeding Christmas has found some cherished hope or happy prospect of the year before dimmed or passed away, that the present only serves to remind them of reduced circumstances and straitened incomes, of the feasts they once bestowed on hollow friends and of the cold looks that meet them now in adversity and misfortune. Never heed such dismal reminiscences. There are few men who have lived long enough in the world who cannot call up such things any day of the year. Then do not select the merriest of the 365 for your doleful recollections, but draw your chair nearer the blazing fire, fill the glass and send round the song. And if your room be smaller than it was a dozen years ago, or if your glass be filled with reeking punch instead of sparkling wine, put a good face on the matter, and empty it offhand, and fill another, and troll off the old ditty you used to sing, and thank God it's no worse. Charles Dickens, who's probably more responsible for the traditions we associate with Christmas than any other writer. My thanks for sharing this very special morning with us on the God Slot to Ben Conroy, John Sheehan, Anne Thurston and Fiona Looney. To Pat Campbell and Avon Gregory for all their help on the programme. To Richard McCullough and Kieran Dunn on sound. And last but by no means least to Christopher Kenny, Christian Casey, Harry Watchorn, Daniel Bissett, Jack Gilligan and Christopher O'Shea, the boys of the Palestrina Choir, who end our programme with the great joyous carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. To them and to those of you listening, Nolikona. <laughs>